Hey guys, before we get to the mysteries, we want to tell you about another podcast that we think you're really going to like. Check it out. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie, and I host a podcast called Murderish, which takes you inside stories of murder and other creepy events. The first episode of Murderish lets listeners be a fly on the wall for a first-degree murder trial. The story is told from a juror's perspective as I was that juror. If you are a true crime junkie and need to know every detail, you'll feel right at home with this podcast. Follow Murderish on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you're a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Hello. Hello, Samantha. How's it going, Liz? I'm fine. How are you? Pretty good. How was your week? Good. Really busy. We're getting close to Christmas. Sure. I've had a lot going on. You've been baking up a storm. Been making lots of cookies, buying lots of Christmas presents, going to a lot of Christmas parties. All those horrible things. Ready for it to be over. (laughs) It's it's fine. I like Christmas, but it's it's always just really busy and really stressful this time of year. So I'm glad Christmas is a week away and we'll be done with it soon. Sounds how's, fair. How's your week been? Very uneventful. Yeah. No, I got like nothing. <laughs> I feel like I spent a lot of time at the acupuncture clinic where I volunteer. And also I went because I pulled my neck in my sleep again. <laughs> this has happened before? Yeah. I don't. This is whatever. I'm too tense. I woke up yeah, and I had well, like a weird kink in my neck. Sure. So then I was like, oh, guess I'm going back there. But now I feel a lot better. So anyway. Sounds great. My dog, Lenny Briscoe, was just barking at a totally empty kitchen where nothing was happening. Does that mean that there's a ghost in the kitchen? I don't know. He was doing that last night, too, which Mm. we just attributed to there being a lot of people over, but maybe it was actually ghosts. I mean, there really was nothing happening in the kitchen. That you could see. Right. (laughs) Because will he bark at the heat going on? Yes. We have that off because we're podcasting. The microwave beeping? Yes. The rice cooker just cooking some rice like I wanted to. <laughs> yes, that's obviously bark worthy. Dogs are weird. Listen, my dog is a rescue dog and he is scared of weird things like phone text tones. He is terrified of. If he mm. hears a text tone, he will run and hide and quiver in the corner. It's very strange and I have no clue why. Lenny hates certain models of motorcycles. Not all motorcycles. Certain models? like Or a- certain, col- maybe it's just black motorcycles. But he will fucking lose his shit. Clearly, that means something to him. I guess it does. He'll just, like, lose it. Dogs are weird. Not all motorcycles. Just certain ones. He hates them. (laughs) Same, Lenny. Same. He's scared of the basement, but, I mean, everyone is. Yeah. This is basement super creepy. So do you have any updates for our listeners? We do have a couple announcements. I have absolutely no updates. So this is the last... Uh, real episode we're going to have, do we want to say? This is the last Unsolved Mysteries episode we're going to have year. this year. We will have a Christmas special out next week, but it'll be Forensic Files again. Look forward to that. Yeah. Or or don't. Don't. I don't know. Uh, we're not going to tell you I how guess. to live your life. Yeah. And then we're going to take you. a break the week after, and then we'll be back with more Robert Stack in the new year. Because despite being the non-professionals that we are, we have not missed a week yet. Yeah, which I think has been pretty impressive for us. We worked really hard to put out an episode a week, so we thought we'll just take one break and then come... For the holidays. Yeah, come back full force in the new year. I mean, I'm impressed considering we recorded our first episode at the goddamn library. And yet, (laughs) didn't miss a week. Putting out a podcast a week. You're welcome. Liz and I both have day jobs and other stuff going on in our lives so i surprisingly this is not paying the bills yeah surprisingly (laughs) as it should and it probably never will Uh, although that's a good segue to our next point which is something we wanted to talk about a couple weeks ago but so there's been recent events happened there was a big dust up with patreon Mm -hmm. as you if you listen to a a lot of podcasts you're probably aware where they were going to change their fee structure yes and it was definitely going to negatively impact disproportionately so small contributors 
Which is like everyone. That's isn't pretty it? much everyone. Because here's the thing: if you listen to podcasts, you probably listen to a lot of podcasts, and you probably want to support all of them. So contributing less than five dollars to each podcast you listen to is a way to stretch your dollar Still a lot, and it's a way to support a lot of shows without breaking the bank. So well, anyway, people were so mad about it that rightly so. It yeah, was bullshit. It was, it was dumb. They have a business model where they essentially get a cut of money for nothing and. They yeah. were. They managed to screw it up. So, <laughs> so this happened right as we created our Patreon. Now, Liz and I aren't trying to do this to pay the bills. We just thought it might be some. Look, it, podcasting isn't free, right? I would like we to do get have some Samantha fees. some gas money for driving to my house. Just we, you know, little it, stuff like that. We bought equipment and we have hosting fees. There's money. You know, this isn't yeah. the hardest thing in the world, but it's also not free. So we were thinking this might be a nice way to support our new hobby and then that happened we're like should we just not do patreon i don't know we, we were conflicted however shortly after there was a lot of hubbub about it patreon reversed their decision and are no longer going to roll out that fee to the, the sure. patrons so that's great we would like to know from you guys if we should use a different site are you so mad at them that we should not do it through patreon let us know if you are first of all if you are interested in supporting the perhaps as you podcast and if you are if you would be willing to support us via patreon we do have some plans for patreon rewards that we were hoping to do in january like bonus episodes we want to mail you some goodies in the mail yeah we have some small merch items we thought we'd start Start small, maybe do some personalized things for anyone who's willing to support us. Um, yeah. But we haven't rolled any of that out because we saw this go down. We were like, and oh, we should maybe wait and see how this goes. But now that they've reversed it, we want to hear from you. So let us know. You can tweet us. You can message us on Facebook. You can email us at perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com. And just let us let us know what you think. If you're still supporting a lot of indie podcasts and would be interested in supporting ours on Patreon or if... You see your podcast going to different platforms. Um, let us know, yeah, because we'd like to start this this next year. We'll have some more time to do things like record special episodes and get some small merch items. I don't know. We'll see, but those are our ideas, and we want to hear your ideas as well. The show is going to stay free. Obviously, if you never send us any money, that's fine. Of course, we are happy that you're listening. We're happy that you're enjoying it. That's great. And we're not going to make this, you know, our, our goal isn't to pay the bills with this. No. So if no one gives us anything, that's fine too. We're having a lot of fun doing this and that's not going to change. Yeah. So if your budget is tight, don't worry about it. Pretend you didn't hear this at all. Yeah. But if it's something that you're interested in, do let us know maybe what rewards you would be interested in and what yeah. sort of platforms would work best Honestly, for you. a kind email or iTunes review or message on Facebook is... Yeah. support enough and we appreciate everything we get so absolutely if that's all you can contribute just know that that's more than enough but we also want to hear from those of you who might want to contribute a small dollar here and there yeah so that's that should we jump into this mystery if we don't have anything else i don't have any updates i always I feel nothing. bad when i don't have any updates like should i have researched something should i know even more about the boys on the tracks now than <sighs> i did But you know what? I didn't. So let's just get into it. We're on, if you're following along on Amazon, we are on episode 15 already. And one I wouldn't recommend anyone watch. (laughs) True. This is not my favorite episode, you guys. But here we go anyway. Liz is first. So the first one is uh, Wanted. It's really a missing person case. This is the case of Mickey Joe West. So Mickey left her home and was never seen again. Unfortunately, that was on September 11th, 1979. Uh, 6 a.m., she was getting ready for work. She went to go catch a bus. She worked at the St. Joseph's Hospital as a nurse's aide. I really liked the glasses that the woman who was playing Nikki in the reenactment was wearing. (laughs) They were huge and clear, and I want some. Yeah, they were pretty stylish. So she was supposed to go to work. She never showed up. She was never heard from again, and it says she never claimed her paycheck. Okay, isn't so it? So she didn't run away again. Yeah, We're talking I guess. about did she run away to start a new life? She was living in California with her husband. So the backstory behind this was that she had gotten involved in a friend's marital disputes, and the abusive husband had threatened her, and she said, "I'm going to start carrying a hammer with me." That was the night before she disappeared. I wrote uh, just a hammer. Yeah. Yikes. 
I th- I thought that was super badass, and I was like, way to go, Mickey Joe West. I love the idea of this woman just, like... Carrying a hammer in her coat. I wasn't even thinking of it in her coat. I was thinking of, like, her walking with her giant glasses and, like, a trench coat and her purse going to work, and just, like, literally a hammer <laughs> is out in her hand. Like, if you've seen the movie Drive, like, she's just gonna beat someone with a hammer. But, so that happened, and then she disappeared. So, obviously, they think the person that threatened her... Could have murdered her. Could have kidnapped and murdered her... But there wasn't actually any evidence. No. So they made this unsolved mysteries about it. The person, they didn't say his name in the episode, but the person they were talking about was Marvin Lee Irwin. That was the person who had threatened her because she got involved in their marital dispute and he did not appreciate it. He, there was little evidence he was involved and he passed the polygraph test, which I'm going to say this every single time, means nothing. Nope. That's a stress test. It does not say if you're lying or not. Some people are good at passing them. Some people always fail. It doesn't mean anything. So in 1988, a full nine years after Mickey Joe's appearance, the real mystery to this, well, other than what happened to Mickey Joe West, is that letters start showing up at a shopping mall that are addressed to the police, which that's not how letters work. <laughs> that's not how you get a letter to the police. This is very strange. And they're written in, like, weird, sloppy children's handwriting. If you watch the episode, it's, like, not the way an adult writes. No, it was But it's almost strange. like the way an adult would fake the way a child writes, if that makes sense. Like, it's not sure. really how a child writes either. It's just, like, sloppy adult writing. Yeah. I don't know. But I realize this is also for the reenactment, and those might have not been the real letters. I'm not sure about that. Um. So the letters are, like... I'm scared. I was there at the time of the murder, but I didn't do it. I have information. Please help me. But it's not signed. No. And it doesn't say, like, how to help them. And, again, this is a letter to the police left in a goddamn mall. Like, children found them. It was all super strange. So they find this one letter, and then a month later, three more are found. And they're so unsigned. And I just wrote down, this is so weird. So the idea was, are these letters hoaxes, or is there someone who really knows something who's for some reason trying to get a hold of the police by leaving letters in shopping malls and at movie theaters and other random places? Yeah. The expert who they talked to said they seem realistic, that they conveyed emotion that this person was scared. But I was like, they're... How can you tell? From the reenactment, the letters were like five sentences long. They're sloppily written, and they're just like, I know about Mickey Joe West. I'm scared. I'm not the murderer. That doesn't Please help me. Like, what? Very strange. So vague. I don't know. So, yeah, he was claiming that they were with, that Marvin Lee Irwin was the killer, but this person was with them when she was killed, but too afraid to come forward. At one point... A letter is sent to the television a television reporter in Kansas City stating that the writer could lead the reporter to Mickey Joe's body. But again, it's not signed. There's no way to ta- contact this person. Right. So the reporter, like, makes a plea on the air, like, please get in touch with us and tell us what you know. Like, we don't have to use your identity. And nothing comes of it. Authorities appealed to the letter writer. He never came forward. I, I don't even remember how many letters they were in total, but it was totally... Very bizarre. So, you have these mysterious, poorly written letters that are not put in the mailbox and are just, like, left in malls for the most part. Real mystery, yeah. That's the mystery. The mystery is, does this person not know how letters work? Yeah. Apparently. I I mean, that's the real mystery. I mean, it kind of makes for a good Unsolved mystery segment because I have never heard of this before and I probably will never hear of this again because it's just odd. Right. Um, So it's sort of resolved. In 1991, Marvin Lee Irwin confessed to the murder, stating that he approached her at the bus stop when she was heading to work. She took the hammer out of her purse and threw it at him. He then beat her and, according to him, intended her to take her to work. After beating her? After beating her. But she made, quote, racial references to him. So he stabbed her four times in the chest. Shot her twice in his vehicle. Uh... And buried her in a cornfield in Highland, Kansas. The police admitted that they made mistakes in the investigation and had failed to search his vehicle. Why wouldn't you search the vehicle? I don't know. They they literally had one suspect. And they didn't search his vehicle. And they vehicle. didn't search his vehicle. And it turns out there would have been evidence in it because he shot her in there. Okay. Well, great job. So they clearly... I mean, it sounds like they were sort of thinking maybe Mickey Joe West had started a new life. 
without, without her last paycheck or telling which, her husband or I think taking any of her possessions. I think that's the reason that they even bothered to mention that she didn't collect her last paycheck because that's sort of refuting that idea that she just left. Also, everything else also refused. Also, it. someone had literally just threatened her before she disappeared. And she was carrying a hammer and to she, and from work. You knew you had this name of one suspect and you didn't search his car. God. Sometimes these make me crazy. Yeah. However, a search of the field produced the bodies of two other women that he had killed. Oh. Well then. But not Mickey Joe, actually. Oh. So he pleaded guilty to the first degree murders of these two other women. Patricia Diane Rose and Crystal Lee Simmons as part of a plea agreement. And then he also pled guilty to second-degree murder for Mickey Joe so that the state would not seek the death penalty against him. So he's a serial killer. Yeah. Uh, The other two victims' corpses were found at the site, but Mickey Joe's remains have never been found. Authorities now believe that Irwin was the writer of the notes and that he wrote them to throw off investigators. Except that they were basically not doing anything. (laughs) I paused because I was like, is that too harsh? But they didn't even search the only suspect's car. So I'm going to say they did not do a great job. No. Seven years had passed. It doesn't even seem like they were still looking into it. Yeah, so why write notes? So he starts writing these mysterious notes, which seemed to, like, reinvigorate the case. Maybe, I mean, it sounds like he was a serial killer. Maybe he liked the attention and he saw that it was going cold and he... Was like, hey, remember when Mickey Joe West just disappeared and didn't start a new life because I totally killed her? Someone look into it. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. It's odd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a sad story. I Mickey Joe West seemed awesome. This guy's a creepoid. <laughs> is that even a word? Don't care. Um, it is now. It is now. He's, as I have learned from my speech patterns, he's 100% Garbage creeper. Super duper garbage Super human duper being. Super duper garbage human being, and we hate him. The letter thing is odd. The The Unsolved Mysteries segment is mostly about the letters, yeah. not about Mickey Joe. Like, even referring it to it as a wanted instead of a missing person, they almost sort of dismiss the actual victim of this case, and they're just like, what's up with these letters? <laughs> I know. Which is the more unusual aspect of it, but it's just kind of sad that she gets push to the side a little bit in the storytelling. Yeah. Anyway, so he pled guilty. The the end? Sure. Sure. I guess. Mm, Sorry. Sorry, Mickey Joe. Should we talk about the orphan train? I mean, I don't want to. If you haven't picked up on this. this mystery. This, we don't like this episode. We'll rate it at the end, but can I just say I give this mystery a thumbs down because this orphan train thing. I've actually been dreading the orphan train since we started this podcast. I knew we'd get to it at some point because I've watched this episode before. Uh, This is just not that much of a mystery, and it's also so depressing, and it's also something I had never heard of in our American history and is kind of horrible. The mystery is why did anyone think this was an acceptable thing to do? That's that is the mystery. Anyway, so this is considered a lost loves. Robert Stack tells us that around the turn of the century, the streets of New York City were filled with starving immigrant children who had no one to care for them. The city orphanages were overflowing. School classes and afternoon naps took place outside, even in the bitter cold. The photo they have of this will break your heart into a thousand pieces. I know. It's all these kids on cots. You know how it is. You took naps in grade school. But and now imagine doing that in the snow. And the streets of New York City. It was horrible. So... Unsolved Mysteries tells us to alleviate the crowded conditions, the Children's Aid Society of New York came up with a unique plan. Which? That's one way to refer to it. Makes me want to burn things down. They began to put orphans on trains headed to the South and Midwest, hoping they would be adopted by farm families along the route. Which essentially just means used for labor. Sold. Yeah. Yeah. Between 1890 and 1929, scores of trains carried at least 150,000 orphans into the heartlands of America. Sadly, many of them were separated from their brothers and sisters because this is what happened. The trains would literally pull up and the prospective parents, as Unsolved Mysteries called them, were waiting at the station. They would march the children out and the adults would just pick which one they wanted. And most of them just wanted one kid to like presumably work their fields. And so... 
siblings would be separated. In the reenactment, even, they show them, like, feeling the children's arms. Yeah. Like, the, how strong they are to see how that good they would be at farm labor. Yeah. And, and the, they'd be like, oh, this one would be good for the fields. The people on the trains accompanying the children are like, come take a look at this one. And it's, they're literally just selling kids. It's disgusting. It's despicable. I'm kind of want to cry right now. Yes. So then they show us two elderly men named Algie and Johnny who were separated after riding the orphan train to Arkansas. They are the cutest little old men you've ever seen. They were reunited later in life before Unsolved Mysteries came along. Um, They talk about how hard it was. You know, they thought they were going on an adventure, right? At first, they were going on this train. They thought they were going to go to families. Their life in New York sucked, right? So they were like, let's go out west, which seems like this adventurous place full of cowboys, right? So they get on a train, which every kid loves a train. Oh, yeah. And they're looking at the world passing by. They think they're on an adventure. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to meet this nice family. But, you know, whatever they're told. And then... And then in the reenactment, there's these two little boys holding hands, and they walk onto the platform, and then, yeah, one is just taken away because they only wanted one kid. It's horrible. We don't have gruel for two children. Come with us one child. And then Unsolved Mysteries shows them as little old men kind of walking along together. It was... And it's enough to make you cry. I'm, I'm like getting emotional up. right I now. I know. Actually, I hate this mystery so much. So then we get the story of Francis Murphy and Sylvia Wemhoff. First, let's do Francis first because it's the worst one. So <laughs> Francis Murphy was 11 when he rode the orphan train in 1928. The orphan trains operated from 1854 to 1929. Shuttling parentless children from New York to new homes in the Midwest. Sadly, many of them were separated from their siblings. I'm reading off the Unsolved Mysteries wikia for this. So Francis was forced to leave his impoverished mother and infant sister Margaret behind. For him, the trip seemed exciting with the prospect of moving west. However, at each stop, more children would get off and be adopted while he was left behind. Sadly, he was never adopted, and he went from family to family as a foster child. However, his life changed for the better when he married and became a high school teacher. He has five children and six grandchildren, but he is still desperate to find Margaret. She was born in either Yonkers or New York City and would now be 89 years old. Their mother, Hilda Harding Murphy, um, is presumed to be deceased. So, unfortunately, he died before Unsolved Mysteries could get to <laughs> if him. If you thought that was not depressing to enough. To interview him? Um, oh, he, they recorded his segment, and then he dropped dead before f- being reunited with his loved ones. Yeah, so, unfortunately, he developed heart disease in 1987 and passed away shortly after he was interviewed in November 1988. But his wife and children were still searching for Margaret. It never said if they found her. The reenactment <laughs> of him having to get off the train and get rejected at every, every stop. stop and feeling like nobody wanted him. And then him being the last kid on that train. I'm going to cry. <laughs> it's awful. I hate this one so it's much. It's awful. Send me to the dentist three times before oh I would God. watch this again. I feel so bad for Francis Murphy. It's, I mean, I was like, oh, can I just adopt Francis now? And then they're like, oh no, you can't. He's dead. Yeah, and it says that he... Thanks, Robert Stack. You just punched me in the stomach and slapped me across the face. His life got better when he became an adult and found a wife. Like, his childhood was awful and he went from home to home. I don't know. I hate this episode so much. So next we get the um, story of Sylvia Wemhoff. Sylvia was born in 1918 in Brooklyn, New York, and orphaned by 1921. She was one of several children who rode the orphan trains. She was taken from New York and sent to Columbus, Nebraska, where she was adopted by the Mick family. Her birth parents were deceased, and she knew nothing about them. When she was 17, she began asking her adoptive parents about her birth parents. Um, But, of course, they knew nothing about it because the train rolled into their town and they picked a kid. Years later, she located her birth certificate, which stated that her birth name was Sylvia Wonk and that her mother, Pauline Viktovich, was an immigrant from Austria. She had another child, and Sylvia is now looking for her long-lost brother or any other siblings she might have. So this case first aired as part of the Orphan Train series... And it is solved. Sylvia's brother, 72-year-old Joseph Wolk, was found living in New York. His stepdaughter was watching the broadcast and recognized his mother's name as the name of Sylvia's. 
A few weeks after the broadcast, Joseph and Sylvia were reunited. Sadly, they have since passed away. But they were extremely old when this aired. Um, so I guess it's, it's happy that someone got a uh, ring. They got to spend a little bit of time together. I hate this episode. It's <laughs> brutal. That's all I have about the orphan train, and I never want to talk about it again. Oh, wait. there's But I... but, but Okay. Was my, there more? Did I'm going to say more? that my pick for a mustache is in Sylvia's segment. Oh, mine wasn't. So tell me who you you. So there's a is. photo of Sylvia, I believe with her adoptive family. It's this black and white, old-timey family photo. And oh. the dad in that photo has a great mustache. I don't mustache. even remember that. I think I was just trying to get through it as fast you probably as possible. Were, you probably were crying so hard that you couldn't see the mustache. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, But that's my pick. Okay. But then again, let's never speak of the orphan train again because it is... Nope. Heartbreaking and makes me hate everything. And I'm going to go back in time and adopt Francis. <laughs> I know. Okay. Blah! Can we please move on to a fake psychic so I can stop thinking about this? Yeah. So as a palate cleanser, let's discuss fraud Dorothy Allison, <laughs> <laughs> who is a psychic detective. Uh, is that what we're calling her? Well, that's what the Unsolved Mysteries Wiki calls her. All right. It's not as fun as that show Psych. Sadly. Not at all. <laughs> uh, she lives in New Jersey. She has helped hundreds in hundreds of investigations. Although in several cases she finds no answer, in many <laughs> other cases she is able to help solve. Sure. Okay. I'm sure that has nothing to do with actual police work. It's all Yeah, it's all her. Thing. She's lived in New Jersey her entire life. Her husband is an engineer, blah, blah, blah. She, when she was 14, she had her first indication of psychic abilities when she predicted the death of her father, which made me just write down, murderer? <laughs> because how did her father die? I don't know. They didn't say. They didn't say. Unsolved Mysteries, this episode has sort of a weird format where they focus on Dorothy, and then they give you three examples of cases that she's helped with, and then they test her to see yeah. if she's, she's what she claims to be. I sort of felt like Dorothy wasn't knowingly defrauding people. Oh, I th- did you think that? That's my personal thought. I think she thinks she's psychic. Also, I don't see how any of this is helpful. What happens? It's really not. We can talk about these three cases they use as examples, but in each case, she comes up with a bunch of just random like numbers and locations and whatever. That doesn't help them find anything. And then no. later when they do find it, they're like, oh, it's just like Dorothy said. It doesn't actually help them solve the case. They mm-hmm. can retroactively go back and say, she said it would be by water, which everything is by water. Yeah. Unless it's the middle of the desert, you're yep. going to be able to say, yes, it's by water. I think Unsolved Mysteries picked three cases that seem to be like the most convincing of her psychic abilities, which do have some like weird coincidences in them. But also, she's worked on hundreds of cases, and in some of these, she's like, "Oh, I came up with nothing." Right. So those are the ones that. Didn't so a work. psychic that comes up with nothing sometimes is not super convincing to me. Like sometimes you guess correct. That that's not a psychic. I mean, I sort of felt like she thought that she did have a gift, and she was trying to help people. Though I'm sure she gets money, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it is actually helping. No. If that makes sense. It I don't know that she's like a, a through and through con artist. I was willing to give her a bit of benefit of the doubt about that, that okay, she sure. believed it was true. I, I don't think it's true. Some people do, I think, have an ability to convince themselves yeah. that what they're doing is that's, real. That's my theory on Dorothy Allison, personally, allegedly. Yeah. Sure. So one of the cases that she helped with was the case of Michael. Yeah, Michael. <laughs> Uh, Kerr 6? Sure. On December 3rd, 1967, five-year-old Michael went out to play with his brother around 8 a.m., and he fell into a churning river, and it was immediately swept away and drowned. And it's it's so sad. Heartbreaking, and it's just one of those sudden fucking accidents that comes out of nowhere and, you know, changes everything. So the police could not locate his body, Two hours before his accident, psychic Dorothy Allison, according to Dorothy Allison, woke up from a horrific nightmare that predicted Michael's death. She saw him in a, in a pipe. His hands were black, but there was a strange illumination of light. A month after his disappearance, Dorothy went to the police and insisted that someone listen to her story. 
Police were surprised when she described the exact clothes that Michael was wearing, even though the information was not released to the public. Dorothy also began seeing the numbers 120 and 8, and that his body would be found behind a school. Which, schools are everywhere. Yeah. Like, what counts as behind a school? You know what I mean? Like, in some other case, it was like, oh, it'll be by an old church. But, like, think about it. Churches are everywhere. Yeah. So... And how close does the church have to be to be Like, at some point, it's like, oh, there'll be a tree and a road and a, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, there will be, because (laughs) there will be. Um, Other clues came up, such as a parking lot, a parking lot and the ITT factory, lumber and gold lettering on a window. Investigators believed that the number 120 might have been an address or a date, but they were still unable to locate Michael because none of that's helpful. Nope. None of that tells you where the body is. But as it turned out, 120 was the time the investigator was told Michael's body was found. Not helpful. She Not. predicted the time that the investigator would be told we found the body. If it wasn't that, it would have been something else. It would have been some other random 120 number yeah. associated. It was the day Michael's mom... Right. Had a dream about him. It like, it's, there's, it could be anything. Part of a phone number or right. part of a license plate. Or you would, you would you eventually find. You random numbers and it'll come up. Run 20. Several things that had come up from Dorothy matched the scene. Michael's body was found near an elementary school in a riverbank across from a lumber, lumber barge next to a door with a office building with gold lettering on the window. Like, something's going to have that. I don't know. Clearly, and we're skeptical. He was he was wearing the clothes that Dorothy described, except they knew the clothes he was wearing when he went missing. So not that again, not impressive. helpful. I, I I don't know how she knew that, but I don't know. So another case is John Demars, who has an amazing name. Yes. On December twentieth, nineteen seventy four, that he was a New York banker. He left his Manhattan office for his train ride home to New Jersey. He was happily married with two children. But when his train stopped, he was not on board. And apparently he was the type of person that if he was going to be five minutes late, he called home. Which if I was his wife, I'd be like, I don't care. (laughs) Why are you bothering me that you're going to be five minutes late? You're later now. You made this phone call. Yeah, you probably had to go to a phone booth. This is pre-cell phone, so (laughs) that seems unnecessary, John DeMars. But the point was, he was a stand-up guy. Yeah. He He came home and he said he was going to come home. He wasn't out. Starting new lives. Starting new lives or having affairs or whatever. Their first thought was that he embezzled money. Okay, sure. Or ran off with a lover. Also not true. They just thought that might have happened. (laughs) But both those theories were discounted. So the detective actually went to Dorothy Allison for help. Which I was like, okay, talking about police resources. Let's get back to can we look for missing children? Oh, we don't have the resources to do that. We have the resources to contact psychics, though. Oh okay. My God. Well, great. Um, <laughs> We're not super thrilled with this episode, if you can't no. tell. Dorothy told him that John had fallen off the train and drowned, but the detective did not believe her because that sounds crazy. He asked for more clues, and she said there was a stack of tires, a local beach, a fire engine, the numbers 222, and a bow and arrow. And the detective was like, screw you, lady, and left. <laughs> however, it t- however, two months after John vanished, a father and son were target shooting with a bow and arrow on the bluff of the Pacific River. No, that, I did not say that right, but we're still moving on. One of the arrows missed the target and landed a few feet from John's body. John had been found on February 22nd, 2-2. Two. <laughs> also, this is coincidental. Also nearby, there was a stack of tires. Okay. There's tires everywhere. Whatever. But what is weird is that it seemed like John fell asleep on the train. The train made an unexpected stop to let off a passenger. And for some reason, doors opened even like over the river. So half asleep John goes, oh, this is my stop, steps off the train and fucking falls off the bridge <laughs> into darkness. Uh, and drowns in the river. You and have to admit that's a little interesting. Oh. I would never have guessed this. The conductor didn't notice. That has been no one on the train noticed. No one on the train noticed. That's a crazy way to die. 
and heartbreaking, and I'm going to be paranoid about it for the rest of my life anytime <laughs> I'm on a train. That I don't want to just be like, what? Because I'm totally the the ditzy person that's like about to miss their stop because I'm reading a book or listening to a podcast or whatever. And then I'm like, oh, what? And I like run towards the door. And apparently I could just step off into nothingness Mm -hmm. and fall while I'm not even awake enough to realize what's going on and then die in a freezing cold river. I thought this was the most compelling evidence towards Sylvia being an actual psychic. Because it's, who would guess that? Like, it is kind of crazy. And it's she did crazy get a lot to of say weird... that he fell off a train and drowned. And then when the detective was like, how did that happen? She was like, I don't know, but it did. And it did. Yeah, that's weird. The bow and arrow thing is strange. That's a who's... very specific detail. And also when she said he was like, a bow and arrow. Like, that's, it's not like that area was known for its archery or something. Like, yeah. it's just a totally random that that's how, again, doesn't help them find him. No, but it is interesting. That one's interesting. Kind of eerie. Okay, there's one last one. This is the case of Susan Jacobson. So she was 14 years old. It was May 15th, 1976. Uh, she left her Staten Island home for a job interview at an ice cream parlor. So cute. Could you be more wholesome than that? Oh. When she didn't come home for dinner which would be a very long job interview, her parents <laughs> called the police. The police claimed that she'd probably run away with her boyfriend and refused to search for her. Yep. This makes I me... hate everything. So, so angry. Yep. Her poor parents, who seemed like sweet, adorable people, they are like, please look for our daughter. And they're like, mm, she probably just left with her boyfriend. Oh, my God. So her Parents were desperate because the police weren't helping them at all, and someone told them, you need to contact this psychic. I don't blame them at all, because what are they going to do? The police are refusing to do anything. The police are literally refusing to help them. They didn't seem like people who would have the money to hire a private detective. Mm -hmm. Someone's like, you should talk to this psychic, because she's endorsed by the police, right? Police departments use her to look. So they go to the police. Uh, They go to Dorothy Allison. She immediately says that the missing girl's numbers are 2562, which was her birthday. Then she also asked if 408 or 405 made anything. And she was like, yes, she was born at 405 a.m. First of all, she took two guesses, whatever. This is the part that's weird. She asked what Mar, M-A-R, meant. And they were like, nothing. And she was like, okay, well, I see M-A-R, like it's painted in red. And then she dropped the bombshell that Susan had been strangled by her boyfriend. They went to the authorities, but that area's detectives didn't want to work with a psychic. But Susan's father, Bill, started working on the clues and was, like, literally just driving around Staten Island trying to find anything that related to these things that Dorothy had said, including abandoned cars, the letters, M-A-R, and red spray paint, the smell of oil, Two sets of dual church steeples, two smokestacks, swamps, and marshes. They weren't able to find out what the clues meant at first. Eventually, he stumbled upon, in a place called the Downback, an abandoned World War I shipyard. And they found a rock that literally had M-A-R spray painted on it. And they were like, okay, this is it. We found the spot. And they searched all around, and they couldn't find anything. Two years later, some boys are in that area hunting muskrats, (laughs) as you do, and they crawl down into this, like, kind of hole that's by a tree, and they find two oil drums, and that's where she is. So, actually, all of those clues added up, which almost makes me think that she put her there. So, the... (laughs) So saying M-A-R spray painted on a rock is very specific. And also it's just totally random. There's not even really an explanation why anyone did that ever. Right. It's like someone's initials, like I was here, Mm -hmm. whatever. She's in these oil drums, which is the smell of oil. The the drums are like partially submerged in water. From that place, you can see all these other things that she said, like the church steeples. Yeah, anyway, so it turned out that the murderer was Susan's boyfriend, Dempsey Hawkins. He was arrested and tried for her murder. And I want to take every police officer who refused to search for her and just punch them in the face. Yeah, they're probably dead by now, and I'm glad because... 
Because we don't need them being police officers. If she you're refusing to look for a missing child, I, I hate so it. I hate her. Yeah, she did. She deserved to have authorities care about her. Care about her enough to give a shit and look for her. Which, which they did nothing. They didn't even do the minimum. No. They did zero. They did zero and told her family they didn't have the manpower. And she probably just ran away with her boyfriend, which you couldn't even take the time to go talk to her boyfriend. In the, yeah. First of all, her boyfriend didn't leave. No. So that's something. <laughs> and then also, he was the murderer. So you just said, we don't have time to look into a first-degree murder. Um, He was tried and convicted. He was later paroled and has been deported from the U.S. So you don't have to worry about, I don't know where he is, but if you're in the U.S., you don't have to worry about the MC Hopkins. Good. Um, yeah, very sad. So those are the cases that they use to prove that this woman is psychic. I would say the last two do have some really amazing coincidences. And I, I can't off the top of my head explain how no. she knew those things. I don't know that I think she's psychic. I don't know either. Those, I mean, they're very compelling, but also a psychic that's not right 100% of the time is suspicious to me. Like if you're a psychic that often gets things wrong, which they kept saying that she was... Yeah. I don't know that I think you're a psychic. But I mean, out of all of these cases, I think we're seeing the most compelling ones. Of, of all the cases she's worked on. Yeah, they picked the most compelling Obviously. ones. Obviously. Sure. And in a way, it doesn't matter if she's psychic or not, because it doesn't actually help. No. Like, it didn't help them find, even though she got them to the right place for Susan Jacobson's body, they didn't actually find Susan Jacobson's body, because it was in this sort of underground area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in none of those cases did she actually help them find the person. No. There was just weird coincidences. They just afterwards were like, oh, she was right about everything. But what good did that do you? Exactly. Nothing. Not really. So even if she's psychic, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) That's my reaction. Good point. All right, so Samantha, talk to us about Unsolved Mysteries testing her. Yeah, so here's what happened. Unsolved Mysteries decides to connect Dorothy with investigators who are trying to solve the murder of 15-year-old Lori Zimmerman. Lori disappeared from her aunt's house four years earlier. Her body was found partially naked in the forest 12 miles away, and there have not been any significant leads. They don't give Dorothy any information about the case. Dorothy is contacted by Keith Watchenstite? Yep. That's it. Watchenstite. Nope, you got it right the first time. I have no idea how to pronounce his name. Of the Maryland State Police. Dorothy drew up a list of clues the night before, and this is what she tells Detective Keith. He should look into someone who works at a school as a janitor. It, It was some kind of kidnap or abduction of some kind. The suspect has suicidal tendencies. There's something Is that helpful? No. Go on. There's something <laughs> wrong with the feet. Seven and one are important. This guy wears glasses and sometimes a hairpiece. And he might be a police officer in disguise with a beard and a hairpiece. So Keith tells us that he is a policeman who wears plain clothes because he's just a detective, although he doesn't consider that a disguise. He wears a hairpiece, which was really funny to hear this guy say. He got called out on it. (laughs) And he had just shaved his beard two days ago. So I guess they're speculating that, that Dorothy was picking up vibes from him, and that's why she got these clues. I don't know. Someone involved in this case at some point wears a wig or a hairpiece. Didn't, like, every guy wear a hairpiece back then? Yeah. I mean, that's not... (laughs) So he was like, oh, the hairs on my neck stood up because she was talking about me. That's not helpful that she tells you you wear a hairpiece. You know that. (laughs) Maybe you're hoping other people don't know that, which we do. Everyone knows now. Sorry, Detective (sighs) Keith. He at least was amused by it. He was amused by it. He didn't seem embarrassed at all. And his hairpiece... Looked good. It was actually a pretty good one. I wouldn't have noticed that he was wearing a hairpiece if he hadn't told us. If a psychic hadn't called him out on it on national television. (laughs) It looked real. I don't know. So Dorothy flew out to meet with him. As soon as she got there, he was like, hi, how are you? And she's like, I have a name for you, Chuck, in either Bernstein or Goldstein. So, okay. She had quite um, the story to tell about Lori's last day, how she met up with people and how she was raped and hit on the head. Keith is impressed that she says Lori was choked because the cause of death was suffocation. But she seemed to really emphasize like being hit in the head. And as she's talking to him, because you see it in the car, 
he's guiding her answers. Yeah. Like, he's like, yeah, she got hit in the head, but she was suffocated. And then, Dor- then Dorothy's yeah, like, like, yeah, yeah, oh. I, I get suffocation. Yeah. It, or I get that she was choked. Like, if this had been in a vacuum, like, if she was just giving this information, it might be impressive. But he was actively interacting with her and, like... She's reading him. She's reading yeah. him. So I wasn't impressed by that at all. But Unsolved Mysteries tells us that a lot of the clues Dorothy comes up with are meaningless or dis- misdirections. Oh, great. Thanks, Dorothy. Like Keith's hairpiece or the fact that Lori's stepfather was a janitor and never a suspect in the case. Um, there was never a Chuck or a Bernstein or Goldstein that was ever connected with the case. And yeah, Lori had been laid to rest in plot 17 at the cemetery. But I mean, that's it. How many things are going to have a number one or seven? A lot, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they ever solved that case. Um, I don't I, think so. I don't believe that they so did. They there was no update. Her and she did nothing. She didn't help She at just all. told a guy, I know you're wearing a hairpiece. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> yeah, that was it. So, kind of stupid. I did think Ugh. that MVM, I just wrote down cop who believes in the psychic. I don't remember who he was. Oh, yeah. He did have a good He mustache. had kind of a, uh, like a volcano mustache. He has like, like a classic cop mustache. Yeah. I I'm still going to vote for old timey photo guy. I'll have to look up old timey photo guy. We'll, okay. we'll put him on Instagram. Follow us at perhaps it's you. Um, that's let's, it. Let's rate this sucky bad episode. Uh, for mysteriousness on my notes, I just wrote meh. Yeah, I agree. Sideways. The letters is kind of mysterious. Yeah, that was kind of mysterious. It's weird. The orphan train is just sad as hell. I don't know that the psychic is mysterious. The psychic? I'll give it a little bit of mysterious because the last two you talked about were... There were some were, coincidences were that are hard to dismiss. Had, yeah. but I'm Sideways. I'm a, yeah, I'm a thumb sideways for mysteriousness. How do you rate the reenactments? I also wrote meh. <laughs> Yeah. They weren't that, that great. I mean, the orphan train ones were sad. I mean, they were well done, the shots with the train. Yeah, there were some good train shots. There's there's some really, uh, that that the Francis standing on the caboose of the train as it pulls away and he's not adopted, that's going to make you want to die. So is, is that. Does that make it good? I think that makes it good. Okay, I'll give him a thumbs up for reenactments because I did like the train shots. I'm just going to give it for the train. Not so much for people picking up letters in the mall and going, who? Not so There was a lot of that. I Yeah, sideways, I think. Uh, So how do you rate the fashion? I remember there was a couple good perms. There were some horrible perms. I think I even wrote down at some point bad perm, but I don't even want to say who I said that about because that's just mean. Um, I think uh, the actress who played Mickey in the first mystery had a Yeah, she had a look, and I appreciated it. And there were some other ones I can't really it's remember. It's still a meh. It was all right. Some this is a meh episode all around. sideways. What about Robert Stack's outfits, his narration, I all that? I s- specifically wrote down at one point that he was wearing, like, a really good suit. Like he it was, was looking sharp. Like, it was, like, well, ta- better tailored than, than usual. usual. It was not quite as, like, 80s bagtastic. Um, I don't even remember which one that was. It was a brown suit, though. Okay. And, yeah, I think... But I'm thumb sideways. I wish there was a I carousel. I mean, we didn't get a good Robert Stack in a haunted no. carnival. And still no turtlenecks for you. Nope. So how do you rate this episode out of a, out of Robert Stacks? We can give up to five. I say two. You were that high? I said one. Or, <laughs> or perhaps 0. 0.5. Wow. I don't like this episode. I have a really visceral reaction to the orphan train. It it's, was... Really horrible, yeah. and it, it's really just the story itself. It really has nothing to do with Unsolved Mysteries. It's just how sad it, the story is. I mean, it we, does we've make talked you... about some sad things so far, and this one affects me a lot, and I really don't like it. It's, I mean, it's very sad. It's We're talking about thousands of people, mm-hmm. so the scope of it is huge. 150,000 orphans. Oh. And it's not really Unsolved Mysteries' fault, so it might be unfair to rate this episode so low, but I... If you I, don't want to watch it and you don't recommend it, then you rate it low. Yeah, so I one mean, out of five Robert Stacks for me. I, yeah, I would give it a one or a two. Yeah. Like, it's it's not my least favorite one, but I'd really rather not watch it again. I'm never watching um, it again. 
the orphan dream thing is so sad. The psychic thing goes on forever. Ugh, I could not. I mean, it's kind of funny that they tested her. Like, let's see if this is real. But then they sort of didn't, like, emphasize the fact that she failed the test. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, why did you t- I thought they were going to be like, this mystery is exposed. But they sort of were just like, well, we'll see if that those leads help. <laughs> Yeah, like, it wasn't well, they much don't. of a test. So um, that's that episode. Thank God it's over. Um, <laughs> do you have a recommendation? Ah, like you're like, let's just move on and never speak of this again. I'm so excited to move on from this episode. Yes, I do have a recommendation. You'll be pleased to know. Uh, <laughs> so I had made like basically no plans for 2018 so far because I had not gotten my planner yet. <laughs> and if I couldn't write it down... Then it's happening. not happening. Well, my planner came. Yeah, so that, you told me about this. I'm, I'm excited sure, to see it. I'm sure everyone was wondering. Did Liz, you add that glittery part in the front? No. That, it came with that? Yes. This planner is amazing. Wow. So I ordered a planner from the Etsy shop, The Pop Witch. Love it. I'm sure you were all wondering, Liz, what are you going to spend that fraud settlement check on? <laughs> we know you got fraud. $43.44, I immediately went and bought a planner. That's what I did with it. It's a good use of your money. I like it. <laughs> um, it's adorable, and I love it. It's handmade, but it's, like, super professionally. That's handmade? Yes. A machine did not make no. that? Holy crap. It's super, super well done. So it ha- what Samantha was referring to is it has this, like, glitter elastic for holding it together that, like, Oh, and it's glitter on the inside, too. Yes. So the cover has, like, a pink snake on a pentagram, and it says 2018. And then you can tell, even though it's really well done, you can tell that she, like, wrapped the cover herself, and then it has glitter and paper. She put these, like, little silver corners on it so it doesn't get all smushed. And then you open it up, and it says, this planner belongs to a badass witch. And then yes. you can put in your name. And it has a really cute... Um, diagram for the wheel of the year, which is like the witchy way to think of the seasons. It lists your full moons and your new moons. Nice. And then you got, you know, your calendars, obviously. It has nice little tabs for each month. And then each month picks a witch from pop culture wow. for that month. And it gives you a spell. Is that the to good do. witch from The Wizard of Oz? Yes. This is Glinda the Good Witch, who is the witch of January. And then you get your calendar for January and then all of your, you know, weeks to write in your shit. It's so freaking adorable. That is so well done. I the design of it is so good. Last year I was using just a, like a Sanrio planner, which I was perfectly happy with, and I was just gonna order another one. Except they didn't make the same type. It was like a two year one, and it was small, and I was like, this isn't gonna work for me at all. So I'm very happy I got this. I highly recommend it. If you like watching movies with witches in them, then you can. It's it's perfect for you, and it's just like all pink and purple and adorable. And glittery, and it has a little pocket thing in the back, and yeah, it's everything I want in a planner. That's amazing. I'm not one of those like planner people. If you don't oh, know, that's yeah. become like a whole thing. Oh my god! There's planner conventions. There's planner the drama. Planner community is there's bananas. Like celebrities in the world of planners. Yeah, there's also this whole like self help kind of yeah. thing that surrounds it, which I'm not into at all. Yeah, planner people are another breed. <laughs> I mean, good for them. It's what they're into, but I'm just, yeah, I, I, I don't go that far with everybody it. Everybody needs their thing, and obviously I support weird hobbies. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm just saying that I'm not part of that world. But this planner is but awesome. I like this planner. I'm, you know, I might buy a couple of stickers and call it a day. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not dev- devoting my, my life and myself to my planner, but I do recommend the Pop Witch Planner. I love it. It's adorable. There will be links to this Etsy shop on our website, perhaps it's you.com. We usually share them on social media too. So if you want to yeah. check, check out this Etsy shop and get one for yourself, highly recommend it. Awesome. Thumbs up. Five out of five rubber stacks for, for this, this planner, planner for me. I agree. So I'm once again recommending some books because that's all I do besides podcast is read books. So I am recommending a sci fi series, which I feel like the. The listeners of Perhaps It's You are probably sure. into sci- science fiction. Um, the series called The Expanse. Okay. Which is not new at all. They're on Doesn't book, matter. They're on book seven. If you're a hardcore science fiction reader or consumer of sci-fi, you definitely know about this series. There's a TV adaptation on the sci-fi channel that I've never watched. Okay. Um, like I said, there's seven books. I 
love this series. They're space operas. I don't know if you know what that is. Explain. So they're basically, the trope of space operas is that there's a, it's usually a war in space. Okay. So there's a lot of big explosions. A lot of people criticize them for not having much plot. I don't think this series follows that. Even though there is a lot of like big sci-fi explosions and twists and turns, there's also a lot of political drama and character development that's extremely interesting. Hmm. And it's one of those series that you want to go on forever and ever because you love the characters and you want to follow them. And Sure. Which I just love a series like that. But th- the reason I'm recommending it pr- in particular, even though a lot of people have probably already at least heard of it, is because, and I know I say this every time I recommend a book, the audiobook is so... Good. Like, this is how good this narrator is. They used him. His name is Jefferson Mays. And they used him to narrate all the books until, like, four or five or something when they inexplicably decided to go with a different narrator. And there was such an uproar about this that I'm assuming everyone returned their audiobooks and wrote bad reviews and nasty letters to Audible that they re-recorded the book with Jefferson Mays. Oh, my God. Amazing. And then re-released it. So amazing. The seventh book just came out, and I'm about halfway done. So I highly recommend it. Since I listen to a lot of audiobooks, I really appreciate the narrator. I actually went so far as to look up the narrator on Audible to see if he narrated anything else that I might be interested in, and I didn't find anything, which was disappointing. I mean, I think that makes sense. That's a good way to find new stuff. If you're a consumer of audio media, the narrator makes a big difference. Sure, and if you yeah. find someone that's really good, you just want to listen to them talk about anything. So he's really good. I love him. And I love this book, these books. And that's my recommendation. Back in my X-Files days, everyone, <laughs> I used to, every single night, fall asleep to the audiobook of Ground Zero by Kevin J. <laughs> Anderson as read by... Jillian Anderson. Oh, amazing. Who has the most amazing voice. Really? Perfect to fall asleep to. Now, they at some point, I don't know, lost the rights to that. If you went to Audible right now, I'll tell you, she's not the person reading that book. However, it's on YouTube. Nice. So check it out. If you would like Jillian Anderson, soothing, wonderful, (laughs) amazing voice to lull you to sleep, or perhaps you just want to listen to something that could have been an X-Files episode, but wasn't, right? Because it was a book. Yeah. Uh, Okay. It's kind of an interesting story. Uh, (laughs) I'm really just recommending it for her voice. That's amazing. A follow-up to some some book. I recommended the Southern Reach trilogy a couple episodes ago. Uh Uh-huh. And a lot of people contacted us on social media saying that they had read that series and really liked it or were thinking about it or were read the first one and wanted to know what I thought about the second one. I haven't read the third one because a lot of books have been coming out this year or this month for some reason, but I read the second book, which is called Authority, and I liked it better than the first one. Oh, okay. So if you were thinking about reading the Southern Reach trilogy or if you read the first one and weren't that sold on it, I think the second book was even better. Good it has more of a traditional plot. The first book was very cerebral and kind of unique and very you know the narrator is very unreliable the second book is much more traditional so if you didn't like that about the first one i think you really like the second book i saw the preview for the movie that's coming out when i went and saw star wars yesterday oh yeah and i don't know if it's gonna be as good as the book i don't know man it's so rare it's so rare that a movie lives up to a book you like i can already tell from the preview that they've changed some things Mm. Which is, I mean, sometimes you have to when you're adapting a book for for the screen, but I don't know. We'll see. I'll probably see the movie because I enjoyed the book, but I don't know. Natalie Portman seems like she's going to do a good job as the main character, but I don't know about it. What comes to mind as, like, the worst movie adaptation that you've seen? I can't think of one off the top of my head. Can you? I remember going to see Ask the Dust, which I'm not sure anyone saw that movie at all, which is based on a John Fonte book that Mm. I absolutely love, and I was, like, lividly angry with how bad that movie was. Because I was like, now no one will be able to, like, appreciate this wonderful book. Yeah. Screw you all. That is the worst, when you're really looking forward to seeing the film version of a book you love, and then it's awful. I was kind of like, I don't really know how you could make this into a good movie. Like, it's just something that, like, makes sense as a book. But I still needed to see it, because I love that book so much. And then I was like, this doesn't... This is awful. Yeah. <laughs> I was, like, so, like, personally offended. Like, they had done it to me. 
You don't anyway. feel that way. I saw. I thought the adaptation of Andy Weir's The Martian was really good. I saw that movie after I read oh, yeah. the book. And his most recent book I just finished called Artemis. And I'm certain they're going to adapt that for film. And I'm really excited about it because that was a really good book. And I could see it translating really well to film. So if you're looking for a new book and you like sci-fi and you liked The Martian, I if you didn't like how scientific The Martian was, because that's a complaint I've heard a lot. Okay. Like there's a lot of scientific details. I think you would really like his new book, Artemis. Also, Artemis has a really strong female lead character. Hmm. So um, she's a really great protagonist, and I really liked her. The audiobook was great. Every day I wake up and I go... Have they made a movie of Season of Passage? That Christopher Pike book I loved is like an 11-year-old. <laughs> no? Oh. Damn. Damn. Which is also about like Mars exploration. And I just know it would make a great movie. Is it a great book? No, of course not. Start because writing some letters. Because I think I did back <laughs> in the day. I'm not kidding. That's how big of a Dear dork Mr. I Dear Mr. Spielberg. Yeah. Would you My consider? I'm, I'm nine. I'm sure I did. <laughs> I still, I haven't reread it. It's still in my heart of hearts. I'm like, that would be such a great movie. Yeah. So if you have like a billion million dollars, then you're looking for something to option. A million you, billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> could you please make me a season of Passage movie? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all we have for you. Remember, we have one more episode this year. It's going to be a Christmas special. I hope you tune in. And then we're taking a week off. And we will see you in the new year. Yes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Perhaps It's You. You can email us at Perhaps It's You podcast at gmail.com. Let us know if you'd be interested in supporting us on Patreon. Um, write a five out of five Robert Stack's iTunes review if you feel so inclined. We only accept five-star reviews. Yep. It's the only one. <laughs> It's the only one that we care about. That's the only one we care about. I hope you have a really happy holiday. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.